Good evening. You are listening to Three Moves Ahead, and I'm your host, Rob Zachney. Joining me tonight is Three Moves Ahead founder, Troy Goodfellow. Good evening, everyone. And we also welcome back our friend, Julian Murdoch. Ha ha ha, you are all going to be pawns in my quest for global domination. <laughs> yes, and we've been, we've been pursuing that quest a great deal this week, because this week, Twilight Struggle came out on PC. Uh, this has been one of our favorite board games for the last few years, and this adaptation has been in the works for some time, and we finally had a chance to play around with it this week uh, now that it's been launched. Uh, this is, of course, an adaptation of uh, the board game of Twilight Struggle, which was designed by uh, Jason Matthews and Ananda Gupta, and uh, is, is a bit of a darling of the show. And in fact, one thing I, one thing I noticed when I was searching, uh, searching around for references to tw- Twilight Struggle... Uh, when I was writing up a a little uh, piece on this for PC Gamer, is that 538, that that bastion of rigorous statistical analysis, uh, deemed this the best board game on the planet. Uh, so so there you have it. Uh, we, we today we are talking about the the PC adaptation of Objectively, <laughs> the greatest board game ever made. I can't fault them a lot for that. I really can't. I would say that. Uh, so we've we talked about this game on the show uh, on the show before. Uh, we actually had Ananda Gupta. Uh, we've had him on the show a couple times, and and one of those times we we delved into Twilight Struggle a little bit, as well as his ambitions for uh, Imperial Struggle, uh, which is the Seven Years uh, War version of Twilight Struggle, I believe. But uh, for for those sort of just getting up to speed with with, with Twilight Struggle, uh, Julian, I know this is one of your favorite games of all time. Why don't you take us through it a little bit? and explain how it works and what makes it special sure uh i own i now four copies of this game two of the original one of the deluxe edition uh and now the the digital version which i of course kickstarted the second it came out on kickstarter which was about a year and a half ago uh the core of the game uh, is really about managing your influence in the global world, in the, in the modern world, from uh, roughly the sort of end of World War II to uh, when did, what's sort of the last period here? 1986, 1988, something in there? Yeah, I think it basically ends with just before the fall of the wall, right? Right. And, uh, you know, it's pretty rare a game gets that far. Uh, it plays over, if I'm recalling correctly, eight turns, uh, you know, each one representing a different era of the Cold War. More accurately, it plays over three eras of the Cold War, an early war, a mid-war, and a late war. Most games end uh, either towards the end of the mid-war or the beginning of the late war. Um, and and I think what makes this game so interesting is that just aside from being sort of an influence placement game, of which there are, you know, infinite numbers of, of games like that, it really strives to capture the feel of a particular history. So the the card mechanics are such that, you know, I, I play a card, you play a card, and we go back and forth until we exhaust our hands, and then we draw again. We do that eight times, and the game's over. But the cards have either just raw point values or very specific real-world events. Um, you know, so, for example... Uh, you could have an Indo-Pakistani war as a real-world event, uh, which you know honestly could happen anytime between, uh, say, the end of World War II and say, oh, I don't know now. Uh, and and there's a mechanic for resolving an Indo-Pakistani war um, that sort of plays out. So over the course of the game, you're both reenacting moments in history and reenacting an alternate reenacting an alternate history. So like a lot of great. Uh, war games that are based on a on a specific scenario, it gives you an opportunity to sort of try to play a different version of reality where, say, oh, I don't know, uh, you know, the Vietnam War is lost in the first year, and, and all of a sudden that becomes an enormous victory for the Soviets, or vice versa, uh, it becomes a, a definitive victory for the U.S. Uh, and and, and it, with very simplistic gameplay, it ends up creating these amazing narratives for how the game of the world is won and lost. Yeah, I think that this really sort of presses a lot of the buttons we, we've got on the show, right? I think I think we're all of a of a similar school of thought when it comes to how we'd like theme and mechanics to to mix. 
And this is this is definitely a game that not only succeeds at sort of giving you this feel of uh, you're, you're these two these two global uh, hegemonies uh, sort of sort of battling for influence uh, across the the sort of the the non-aligned uh, states in between them, uh, but then also you have you have the Cold War's greatest hits uh, driving the action <laughs> and and like you know d- dramatic stuff that that happened during the during the Cold War will will happen during your game, uh, which you know it, it's it's a funny thing. It, I, I'm I'm always surprised how well it works and how often. Uh, you know how well thought out the effects of these cards often are, right? Like it, you know, it's it's one of those things where this is a game where you you play a card and you sort of read about the historical event, and more often than not, you know, it kind of feels right the the in game effect that, that 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 card has. Uh, so I, I think it's I think it really does sort of you know hit a lot a lot of our check boxes. Uh, Troy, I don't think we've I don't think you and I have ever had a really long discussion of this game. Were you ever a big Twilight Struggle board gamer or I've played is this a the most bit. okay? I play, I'm not really I'm not really the I mean over Vassal with Bruce a few times. So not not in in meat space, not in the real world. Um, though it is a two player game, I should be able to find somebody to play it with me. It is. Really, a wonderful game design, and I think that this uh, version on Steam is just so so well done. Um, especially if you already know the game, I'm, I wonder how well it will work for people who this is their first exposure to Twilight Struggle. Um, I haven't gone through the t- a tutorial or all the descriptions. It is very good in-game cues explaining what's going on, um, but it's a great game to learn with somebody who already knows it because. So many of the nice little nuances uh, that the game gets. For example, um, as Jillian said, it's card-driven, um, and you can play a card as an event, or you can play it for points, and you spend the points to get influence in various regions. If you have an, an event that's favorable to your opponent, you can't just get away with, oh, I'm just going to use it for points. Because if you use your opponent's favorable events for points, the event happens anyway. So, so much of the game is about, oh, crap, I've got to play this card because I'm running out of cards to play. How do and this event's going to fire and is going to give Bruce or whomever I'm playing, you know, a great big victory in the Middle East. How do I spend these points to strengthen myself somewhere else or to soften the uh, results of this event that's going to happen? So so much of the game is about, you know, not just taking the tour of the Cold War. Um but hedging your bets about uh, you know when things are going to happen, how they should happen, and in what order they should happen. For example, when the uh, score when the the scoring cards come out, if you have a scoring card in your hand, you have to play it. But you decide when to play it on that turn. Um, but if you're too aggressive in you know building up Europe, so you can play, play the European scoring card because Europe only gets scored when that card's played. If you're too aggressive in doing it, your opponent will know what's going on. So you have to be kind of sneaky about building up your strength in Europe or just, you know, going right for it, balls out, um, move in the Pershings and hope that uh, it all works out. Uh, yeah, there's a there's a ton of deception in this yeah. game. And I think that's what really separates it from a lot of more traditional war games. Um, you know, certainly, Rob, I know you've been playing a lot of uh, block games, which usually involve some level of deception. I've seen you. I saw you were playing a bunch when you were yeah. down visiting Bruce. Um, and, and that's part of the reason people love block games is there's that sense of, am I putting a bunch of, you know, uh, noobs mm-hmm. in a line or am I putting my elite troops in a line? This game has a whole different kind of deception where that that issue of when you're going to score the Middle East, when you're going to score Russia, you never know when that's going to happen. And so information becomes really the coin of the realm in this game. And deciphering that from your opponent is huge. Add to that that there is an enormous amount of luck in this game, right? What cards you get makes a huge difference. A lot of critical movements that you can take as a player are resolved with dice rolls. Um, you know, there's, for example, there's a whole mechanic for the space race, uh, where you dump a card that you would otherwise rather not play because it's going to be really good for Rob. Uh, you dump it into the space race as a technology boon and you roll a die and generally a one to three and you're successful in a four five, six and you're not. If you have a really great run of that, you've managed to bury a bunch of terrible cards 
and get a ton of points and and a ton of in-game advantages. Um, and if all that goes the wrong way, you've just wasted a ton of turns. So there's there's an enormous amount of luck in a game that is otherwise seen as one of these great strategic pillars of the last decade. Yeah, I, I think that's actually something. There's, there's a couple things I want to revisit in, in that in that uh, exchange you guys just had. But I will definitely say it's interesting playing this uh, on the PC now because in the last four or five days, Julian, I think I've run about as many games of this as I've played in the last three years. Yeah, uh, well, that's that's always the best part about putting these games online is you remove all of the little fiddly mechanics and the setup. And, and this game in the real world is a lot of fiddly mechanics oh, yeah. and setup. But playing it that often, playing in this compressed space and seeing the different ways it plays out, um, I'm able to see now that this game is actually a little more luck-driven than even I gave it credit for, right? That there are things I... I sort of thought I knew about the way this game this this game flowed, but I was actually surprised over over the past like you know half dozen games I played, just how you can have these these huge swings. Uh, you know you can get you can get profoundly bad hands, uh, or or even a series of profoundly bad hands where by turn three, um, you you'd have to be some kind of savant. To, to still be in that game, right? Because like if you if if you had like nothing but uh, enemy cards with with events that favored them, and you know they're controlling all the scoring, and you're just trying to you're you're trying to to stay in this, uh, that can that can basically torpedo you. And in those cases, it doesn't feel like there's a whole lot to do. Now that's that's an extreme case, and that's happened to me in one game out of like uh, like the eight I've played since since saturday but i i've had you know versions of that happen right i've i i've had situations crop up where things that i took for granted like okay so the the focal points of the game tend to be uh europe asia and the middle east and then africa and latin america folded in uh but but really i was i was sort of thinking the game had sort of a predictable flow playing in a compressed time space like this i'm like no no it doesn't uh the the cards can the cards can flop very different ways that that really make it tough to have like a a universal twilight struggle strategy uh which which is probably a great thing yeah, although I think unlike, uh, say, A Few Acres of Snow, uh, you know, a game that I think we all loved and then came out online and then we played the crap out of it online. And once it came online, all of the the, the like flaws in that game, uh, you know, all the sort of obvious strategies It's so a little more out. deterministic than, than we yeah, gave it credit for. And, and, yeah, exactly. It was a little more broken by design than, and I still love the game, but it is a little broken by design as it shipped. Um, here, I don't think that's the case. I agree. If you play a bunch of these games, you start realizing that the luck of the dice and the luck of the cards can make a huge difference. But, you know, I think if you recognize that going in, like when you become a skilled player at this game, you know what cards are in the deck. That does balance out, right? By turn three, you all the cards in that first deck have played. And the ones that were all for you have either been played or dumped in the space race. So it's pretty easy to understand that, each player gets basically eight opportunities, maybe a few more to bury really good cards that are you know good for their opponent. But other than that, those are all going to come out. So it really becomes very strategic how you're going to deal with your luck. Um, and I think that may be the genius of this game system. And I say system because it's the same system behind Labyrinth between 1960 making a president. Um, it's 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 a an engine idea. Um, that I think Matthews, one of the co-designers here, used in all those other games. I don't think Gupta was involved with with 1960 or any of the follow. I think Founding Fathers, I think, uses the same system as well or a similar system. Uh, again, with Matthews at the helm, and and that balance, I think, is really interesting. Right? It's a card-based game where there's randomness, but all the cards get played, which really removes that randomness. Yeah, so the, 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 the card counting is something people will have to learn and get used to, um, knowing what is out there and what is not. Um, and, you know, remembering that there are, there are a couple of cards that will expose your opponent's hand. And that's actually a very powerful tool uh, to play CIA 
uh, in a turn where you're losing by quite a few points. Then you know precisely what is coming out, uh, as long as you can remember. Um, using your headline card properly. And there are all these little things you can do to try to get back up. But yeah, yeah there is a lot... There is, it, it will, of course, suffer all the pro- same problems that every board game does when all of a sudden you can play any time you want uh, as long as one of your friends is online or you don't mind the AI all that much. It will get... It will be understood. I'm not sure it will be solved. I mean, computers have solved Go. It's not going to take too long for a few uh, thousand nerds to find a way. To, in, uh, with all the limitations of what it means to solve a game, I don't think there's going to be. They're not going to have a perfect strategy for it. They're not going to have any Halifax Hammer situation here because the game isn't built like that. It's not built with victory conditions quite like that, and with the dice randomness, of course. Um, I would. I. I do think it's going to be. It'll be interesting to see how its reputation, if people are going to come to this board game and say, what, what, what do people mean this is the greatest board game of all time? They're just going to see all the randomness. They're not going to see the the intangibles. The great things about this board game are like the cards and the pieces and all of that. Um, and it is a brilliant one. I'm not saying it's a bad board game because it's not. I really, and I love this adaptation. I love what Playdeck has done here. And Playdeck has done some really, really good stuff. They did the uh, Lords of Waterdeep app uh, for iPad. They did a Agricola one, I think. Um, and I guess this is eventually coming to iPad where I think this will get even more exposure and probably do quite well there. Uh, but it is going to be interesting to see how the board game community, the information they get with all the iteration and how this information trickles down uh, through play sessions and the like. Uh, so b- before we move off this this card counting thing, I wanted to ask both of you, and, and especially you, Julian, because I don't play a ton of collectible card games, uh, but it's certainly with my comparison to like card-driven war games, at least, uh, I, I feel like there's a uniquely intense amount of of bluffing and card counting in this game, right? Like compared to a lot of other things, like a lot of times it, it feels like in a card driven war game, what I've got in my hand is a menu of options, and that menu can be more or less exciting for me. Uh, but nevertheless, it's it's kind of like this is I get to choose what what actions I'm going to take. The way this is structured, with the fact that events can sort of be two edged swords between the operations points and and uh, and the event on the cards. Plus the fact that certain things are cycled back in and scoring is is variable depending on who's holding it and when it pops up. To me, it feels like this game is uniquely poker-like among card-driven strategy games. And I'm 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 curious whether or not that's just me being a bit naive about how card strategy games and collectible card games work, or whether this is doing something a little different. Well, so so collectible card games are a little different because you know, if if I sit down with David Heron to play a game of magic, right, then he and I don't necessarily know ahead of time even what's in our decks. Like the 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 pool is so big. Here the pool is known in advance, right? Everybody knows that I'll pick an obvious card, Romanian abdication, right? Romanian abdication is a clear, simple card that is always going to be in the advantage of the Russians because, in fact, King Michael was deposed in 1947 and it became a basically Soviet puppet state. So that is just an event that exists in the early game that it will be beneficial for the Russians, period. There's no there's no fuzziness to it. So if you know that that card is in the deck and you're towards the end of turn two, and you haven't seen that card yet, you know it's going to come out. Now, again, you have to understand, you have to have played a dozen or 20 games of it to understand that that's a thing that's going to happen. But if you're the U.S. player and you haven't seen that card yet, you're not going to put guys in Romania because they all get wiped out when King Michael gets deposed. And, And that kind of knowledge of the deck i think is it is particularly unique because they are all each individual one of those cards is so unique and peculiar to this game so it's not quite like card counting where you're playing a trick-taking game and you're like look i just know there are no face cards left because i'm not an idiot and i've seen all the face cards come up so i know how that works and everybody gets that same information here it's really binary um in the sense that we all know to experienced players that this card is still in the deck. And if I haven't seen it and it's not in my hand and it's the end of turn two or going into turn three, 
then I know you have to have it. And so that kind of uh, depth in the bluffing, I think, gets really interesting. Um, it also, to be fair, completely disadvantages players playing against different uh, levels of skill. Right, because it's that's not a skill so much as an experience issue. I'm not a I'm not a particularly skillful player, but I've played this game so much. I know Romanian abdication is coming up in the first three turns, right? So just knowing that is going to make me have a significant advantage of teaching anybody about this game. Turning our attention to the um to the to the PC adaptation itself, uh, how are you guys? How are you guys finding it all? Uh, do, and and what are you looking for from from a good adaptation? Right, like as as you pointed out, Troy, this thing's existed on Vassal for ages. Uh, what what is a good what is a good adaptation of a board game to PC do that you know a, a Vassal a Vassal version doesn't? Well, I mean, one thing it does is it knows the, it, it, the game. The program knows the rules, and it'll give you an AI opponent, hopefully. Uh, the inst- the rules will be somewhere in the game to explain things and clarify things. There will be prompts, and there are very good prompts telling you what you should be doing, what your next step is. Um, it has a, a very good... The dice should look cool. I'm not sure the dice here <laughs> really go to the level of cool, but it doesn't no. feel like you're rolling dice like you would in a really good, high-class, high-budget uh, board game adaptation. You press a button and you get a result. And it shows the pips, but that's kind of it. Um, so it doesn't get up that high with me because of the uh, dice adaptation. The, the dice roll doesn't have a good sound to it. Um, but, but it hits most of the right marks. Um you can quickly jump from one region to the next um, to get a closer look, but you don't have to because the map is so well done and not very cluttered. Um, if you already know your geography, you already know what all the boxes stand for, but and if you don't, you can zoom in and find out, oh, where where is Pakistan again? And you can find it. Um, so it uses the very good Twilight Struggle map and parts it over quite, quite well. Um, it's not always... It takes me a while to find where the side maps are. Like, which of these numbers is my score? Oh, it's that one. Uh, where's the space race map? Can I look at that now or not? Uh, I'm having to find that, find my way around. Once you find it, it's pretty clear. Um, when you play a card, it tell, it gives you all of the options of what do you want to do with this card? Do you want to spend influence? Do you want to spend it on a coup? Do you want to play the event? Um, it gives you everything laid out so you can find out what you're what the available possibilities are. So it's not so it if you've forgotten a part of the game, like realignments, when I play it on Vassal, I always forgot about realignments. Now I can't forget about realignments because voila, it asks if we want to do a realignment. A really a realignment is just when you shuffle influence from one side to the next without doing a coup and thereby provoking uh DEFCON uh, getting worse. So I think it's quite well done. Um trying to think if there's anything any other adaptations that i can point to that i think are as neatly well done as this like i haven't played the lords of water deep one but i've heard it's quite good yeah it's it's great i mean i think Playdeck has got this figured out um you know agricola big complicated game plays beautifully on the ipad same team doing the the design here i will say um, this has been in beta for I want to say about a year, something like uh, that. Yeah, you was were when I first got this, the beta. Right? Yeah, and when the first for the first beta drop for Kickstarter backers, uh, I was really depressed. I was like, "This is a train wreck," and it wasn't that. It, it still looks very similar. I don't. I'm not sure screenshots would have looked looked a lot different, but the flow of the game seems a lot more natural. They've added a lot of visual clues. Um, they've added a lot of, are you sure you want to do this, uh, you know, marks around the corners. They solved a lot of, uh, you know, game uh, game abandonment issues, which seem to have all been resolved now. Um, so it, it's definitely playing very tight and very clean. But, you know, this, I we just have to give props to Playdap. I mean, these are the guys who made Ascension on iOS. I think that was oh, their wow. first that big was, hit. That was huge for its day. Yeah. 
Yeah, that was that was a huge hit. I think that game has done much better on iOS than it ever did in person. I actually don't Absolutely. think it's a particular. I don't think it's a particularly great in person game. And I've played the crap out of the it and all three of its expansions on my iPad. Um, they did the Summoner Wars version, which is fantastic. Um, so these guys get how to take a board game and distill the experience down without being a slave to a particular board. Now here. They have been a slave to the sort of map of the world. I'm not sure how you could do this game without being a slave to that map. But they've done a lot of things. Like the cues they do in colors for what's a battleground state versus not are actually better than the physical game. Um, the, the, the way they manage things like those sideboards you're talking about, Troy, with the space race here and, and understanding what your scoring position is, you know, being able to hover over Asia and understand what would Asia be if it scored right now, that's a huge improvement over playing in the real world. So it, it brings all of those things that I think the best digital board games do well. Um, and doesn't seem to introduce a lot of cruft in the way. Like, you can play a game of this. I, I've been playing a bunch of this in the last couple of days. You can plow through a game of this with somebody who knows what they're doing in about 45 minutes. Like, the, I think the shortest game I've ever played against you, Rob, is about two and a half hours in the real yeah. world. Yeah. I mean, it doesn't help, of course, that we average two stiff cocktails a game. But uh, <laughs> nevertheless... <laughs> Uh, well, you can still do that online, but you can do it more effectively because you don't have to administrate shit and you can't spill scotch all over. Yeah. Everything. Um, yeah. I also realized, Julian, uh, maybe maybe I'm misremembering this, but I think we've been misapplying a rule for ages. Which the, one? Uh, placing influence. Uh, the, the connection has to have existed at the start of the turn for you to place the influence. So you can't like move into Iran and then move into India in the same move. Mm. And I'm pretty sure you and I have just sort of counted forward, like building little influence like snakes. Risk, like risk? Yes. yes. Yeah. You can't I do it. I think you're probably right. I think you're probably right. Yeah. Uh, but there's, there's well, other... Go on. And, and, and we, had, we had the experience today when we played where um, you yes. know, one of the losing conditions here is that if... If somebody forces you to DEFCON 1, that's nuclear war, and whoever forced you to nuclear war loses, right? So you sort of create a victory by default. Um, and, you know, Rob and I were playing today, and we had one of those rare conditions where I played a card which forced Rob to make a choice, and Rob's choice pushed us to DEFCON 1. And then there's sort of this sort of vague question, well who actually lost like Rob pushed yeah. us to the loss condition, but I played the card that let us get there and the game was pretty definitive. I lost. Yeah. I played the card that got us there. I don't know how I feel about the way that rules it, like handled, but I suppose it, I suppose it makes sense. Right. Cause if you were, if you were two points away from victory and you could force some, you know what I mean? Like, you know, if at that point you're forcing someone to do a 50, 50 chance, uh, so I suppose yeah. it's absolutely fair that that person should have the right to be like, no, screw you, DEFCON, DEFCON but, 1. But this is actually why I love uh, these sort of digital implementations of big, complicated board games. It's why I still love playing Magic the Gathering online. Even though, uh, you know, I, Magic I have a, a love-hate relationship with because of the amount of money you can throw at it. Playing it online with virtual cards you pay real money for, which sounds like the most ridiculous thing ever. It enforces all those rules, right? And it does it very well. So even if you're playing a card you don't understand particularly well, you know you're not going to be cheating by playing it because it won't let you. And I really love that. Uh, just little touches I love as well. And like, man, I kind of hope this in, in one way or another becomes the future of, of popular board games uh, because another thing I just adore is that after you play an action with a card, and you can take back that action. The game, the game's pretty generous about letting you, uh, it, like, have take backs as you sort of run it, different scenarios it, it, for yourself. It asks you several times, "Are you sure yeah. you want to do this?" Yeah. yeah. So you can, you can, you can try a lot of different things, uh, which is, which is really cool, right? This, this enables completely different ways of playing it than you could get away with in person. Because if, if someone spots you like counting influence in like Europe or something, and like, no, they, they know what's about to happen, right? They, they know what you're up to. Uh, this is cool because there's there's a lot of like intent signaling that you don't have to worry about, and because the game is handling all the math, 
uh, someone just being a little faster at arithmetic doesn't necessarily always have an automatic advantage uh, as they're as they're playing and able to assess the assess the state of the game. But I I just love like the fact that that little help button that question mark on the left left hand side of the screen will tell you different things based on what just happened in the game. So any action that any action that occurs or any action that you thought about doing, you just go to that green button, press the question mark, and immediately it jumps to the complete rule section dealing with the mechanic you were just thinking about. And like, yep. my God, yep. I like I would kill for that sort of instant reference, like the exact, the exact rule section uh, at my fingertips when I'm playing just about any other mildly complicated board game. Yeah, and I think it's when you get to something that's more... This game sits in an interesting sort of soft spot between, you know, the insanity of the 400-page Advanced Squad Leader rulebook and much simpler, easy-to-teach Euro games, right? Because of the card mechanics having so many rules breaks on them. Um, And so there is that beautiful ability here. I wonder if you could even imagine a world, and I'm sorry Bruce isn't with us, um, to, to do this for a game as complicated as ASL. Man, adaptation of a- adaptations of ASL, that's an interesting topic in itself, right? Because like the most ambitious attempt to convert ASL to a game turned into close combat. Right. Uh, which, which is a super, in, in one way, totally understandable turn of events. But yeah, it would be really interesting to see if someone... W- could could actually do that and, and whether or not any amount of of user friendliness and and the pc handling things could really could really tame that beast my suspicion is not right my suspicion well, is asl still looks a lot like a hardcore john tiller squad battles game yeah i think so and and if you look in the in that genre um you know you look at the simplest versions of those things like memoir 44 to the slightly more complicated tide of iron um type games um, you know, Memoir 44 has a great, uh, you know, adaptation that's available to play on your PC. Not that satisfying because what it actually highlights is how simple the game is. Well, it's Tiger, Tiger's on the Hunt. That's the, this is your new ASL game. Well, that's the to... one that Bruce wrote about, right? Yeah. Yeah. Wait, did he not like it? Not a lot. Okay. I thought that was the new hotness. I guess not. Uh, well, this is Bruce. But I haven't yeah. played much. <laughs> We I can't all speak for played, Bruce. I, I haven't much. I haven't played much of it. Um, but I think what I what I have played has come as pretty much bear out a lot of what you've been saying. But what 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 is ASL about? And a lot of his his review at quarter to three, which I highly recommend people check out, um, got into you know what what does it mean to be a war gamer? What do we expect from war games? And maybe a, people who play those games are different from people who would play something like Twilight Struggle or uh, Lords of Waterdeep. And of different expectations. Yeah, although I honestly find, as I get older, I'm uh, the opportunities to play ASL, even when they show up. Most of the time, I'd rather fire up Twilight Struggle. Um, you know, ASL is at least as random. Honestly, I mean, there's there's no way you can consider ASL anything but random. Uh, everything comes down to the luck of a die roll. Mm-hmm. So, so you know, I think that goes away. So it just becomes a matter of how many rules you want for your simulation. And yeah. uh, and I think Twilight Struggle hits a sweet spot, and putting it into this sort of intermediated format on a PC makes it so much more accessible. Absolutely. Um, and it's I, I want to go back to, you know, Rob talking about the, the rule book tip on the left, because it really is kind of the platonic form of what people in computer game design would like their tutorial what they think their tutorials are doing what they sh- the idea of the adaptive tutorial the responsive tutorial that gives you the information you need right now when you need it and doesn't bombard you with stuff you don't need to know or doesn't um force you to go back in time and try to remember something it tried to teach you you know two hours ago because the help is right there um, right. Or doesn't force you to go through a civilopedia to look for specific details on something. And having contextual help is a huge, huge change um, from the way tutorials have been done. It's something a lot of people are moving towards and seeing it done so well here. I mean, yes, it's easier to do contextual help for a board game where the rules are set in stone and it's recognizing a single action as opposed to doing it for, say, you know, endless legend 
or yeah. um, how are now, now that said, I, I, I should add here that one of our listeners actually uh, got in touch to say he he tried it out and could not fathom how the how the hell this game works. Uh, and it's interesting because I was able to teach it to someone within about five minutes because if you just have someone who can explain a little bit of the game, the in-game help will get you the rest of the way. But the fact that this listener who presumably tried the tutorial still felt completely at sea with this game uh, is is kind of interesting to me, right? And, and I think it, it, it sort of speaks to the fact that, you know, a lot of board games have a, have a lot of board games share their own, I guess, I guess like sort of grammar uh, that we have, that people haven't necessarily seen a ton of in the PC space, right? Like, I, I feel like you can you can quickly like give a shorthand description of Twilight Struggle. Well, it's a territory control influence placement game uh, that's that's driven by cards. It, like a lot of people sort of nod their heads and be like, "Yeah, totally get get where you're coming from." Uh, but if I, I suspect like a lot of people who who've just sort of pursued PC strategy games, that's that's word salad to them, right? And and there's 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 a lot of things here that I think you know it's, it's very easy for us to take for granted because we pursue games like this and we're just used to it. But it's it's completely foreign if you're if you're approaching this from the PC wargaming or PC strategy uh, point of view. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, we have to couch our praise of the of the rule system in the fact that we already know how to play um that is something you have to absolutely keep in mind uh, because the tutorial itself isn't necessarily great um though the in-game the in-game help is good though the tutorial uh isn't necessarily we should keep those two things distinct yeah it's hard i mean it's hard to wade into a game you've been playing since 2006 yeah. or something yep. like that and then and put and say oh yeah this is the game to teach you a lot of people have asked me that in the last couple of days and i'm like uh, dude, I don't know. Come to my house with a bottle of scotch. I'll teach you how to play the game. I have no idea whether this is going to do it for you. <laughs> yeah, but at the same time, I was really impressed by the fact that like, uh, I was able to play it with one of my housemates and he had, you know, he had literally never seen this game before. Really? And yeah, uh, he'd, he'd never come across it at all. So he, he just picked the game up off steam, uh, using his, using his steam, Using his Steam money, he's uh, he's acquired uh, funds in from from card sales, I guess. Uh, but yeah, he just he just picked it up sight unseen, and uh, we you know we poured out a couple beers and we sat down at the dining room table and put laptops you know head to head, uh, the monitors resting against each other, and it felt pretty much exactly the same as well, when, you, when I, you and I have played it, and I was able to explain yeah, it just fine. And you and I played right before this podcast and we got through i would say two-thirds of a game in half an hour and that was beautiful yeah and i think it still felt very much like like twilight struggle i think if we'd had more time we probably would have lab- labored over our moves maybe a little more carefully yeah we were, uh, we were pounding it yeah. but but still i i am really impressed by by how well this this sort of recreates the the feel of, of playing the game uh i i think it, one area where it might be a little rough uh sometimes the game will just have weird delays uh which which can be a little frustrating like there are a lot of cards where first one person has to do something then another person has to do something and then the action of the card can be resolved or something there's a lot of interactions like that yeah and the game tends a- to sort of stall during that during those exchanges I think mostly it's there's a like we you don't realize when you were playing in the real world you had an opportunity to do something, right? Because something seemed obvious, yeah. but you could say no, no, I don't actually want to put four influence in France. Like it's yeah. not a logical choice, but it's still a choice you could make. Yeah, and so I think there are a lot it, that happens a ton there's- in online CCGs, like in Magic. There's like every time you play a card, there's six back and forths. Really? Can I do it? Yes, you can yeah. do it. Can I really do it? Yes, you can really do it. Okay, then I do it. <laughs> well, you know? there, there's that, and there's also the fact though. I'm talking about like literal literal stalls where like my buddy and I are looking at each other, and I'm like, "So are you gonna finish your move?" And he's like, "It says I'm waiting on you." And then we both have to exit out to the lobby and go back into the game, and then it re- then then the server is like, "Oh." You guys have resolved your action. Uh, I should queue up the next thing. So sometimes that uh, sort of uh, 
gets a little forgetful. Uh, Julian, you and I had a had a weird glitch where we could not we could not add each other as friends, uh, which which made me feel uh, like our love is cursed. Um, yeah, I, it was very I, tantalizing. I, I don't understand why this is just not using friend Steam friends list, but probably have because to this go. is going to operate with the iOS thing. I guess, but even even after we'd played. There's no obvious way for me to then find you and say, I just played a game with this guy. I'd like him to be a friend. It's it's not easy. Yeah. Yeah. I wish I wish that maybe worked a little bit better. It probably will. Uh this game's been out for a week and they're they're probably going to improve its performance on that front. Uh but it's 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 a great deal of fun. Uh something I haven't experimented with, and and the game sort of encourages you to to try it out, is um you can also play a late war version of Twilight Struggle, which I'm which I'm actually kind of eager to see. Because in so one complaint, I guess I not not really complaint, but one one issue I've run into with, with Twilight Struggle is that a lot of times by by the time I reach the late war, I'm starting to run off the edges of my of my knowledge, right? Like I have a real good sense of everything that's going to happen in the early game, and a, and a pretty strong sense of of the mid game. A lot of times, but by, by, by the time we got into the late game, uh, the game ends very quickly before before we run out of turns. Uh, something happens, and I just haven't seen the just haven't seen sort of the the late Cold War come together in, in all its in, in all its Glasnostian glory. Uh, well, I, I mean, to me, I think it's just the, it's the way this game is designed. I mean, I honestly I, I don't know how many games I've played of this 50, 60, something like that over the years. I've played five that get past the first turn of the late war. So I'm right there with you. Yeah, it's yeah, it's it's a scenario I want to try out because I because I do kind of want to play a version of Twilight Struggle that's maybe. Uh, a little more the Americans and a, a little less, um, you know, post-war World War II. Uh, but it's it, it's it's interesting. This game this this game sort of puts that stuff front and center, and I'm I'm looking forward to to diving into it because I think if we were just setting up the game ourselves, I suspect we would never run those variants. Uh, well, but so so what we need to play is 1989 Dawn of Freedom. Which is uh, Jason Matthews' extension of this game that just basically plays that one year in the Cold War, same system, exactly the same system. No kidding. Yeah. Uh, well, next time you're yeah. here, man, we'll yeah, fire it up. I, I've never seen it. Okay. So to that point, though, about this being kind of unfamiliar territory for for people from a PC gaming uh, PC strategy background, I think one of the things I find really exciting about a game like this is it holds out this possibility that board game strategy and PC strategy won't always be these completely separate worlds, right? Like Soren Johnson and I were were, were talking a, a few weeks ago about how, like, you know. When Soren looks at the tabletop space, he sees all this variety and all these fascinating topics and all these fascinating approaches to to modeling different events and and issues. And then you sort of look over at the PC strategy space and you don't see anywhere near that near that variety. Uh, and there's there's lots of reasons for that. And I'm not I'm not saying the the whole PC PC strategy landscape needs to over needs to change, but I'm really excited at the idea that board games could become a, a part of that part of that conversation. And I'm curious if you guys think that's uh, wildly idealistic. Like, do you think this, this could ever become like a thing that becomes part of the main, like becomes part of the, the conversation among PC strategy gamers? And uh, what else would you want to see sort of leading the way as, you know, toward that next step, right? Like what other games would you want to see, uh, bridging the gap between PC and tabletop. Well, I mean, I think we are the conversation for strategy gamers. So Whoa. if we're talking, if we're talking about it, little ego it's... there, buddy. <laughs> All right, <laughs> check well, it at the well, door. Time for Troy to go to bed. Yeah, time to put the old man to sleep. Uh, yeah, I mean, I don't know. In terms of we, I, what is the conversation among strategy gamers? Are they generally there's conversations about specific games uh, for the most part in the community and if there's if this is a successful game there'll be conversations about it will it lead to designers wanting to 
and developers go to Soren's point, will this lead to computer game developers looking at all these board games out there, having a chance to play them more often, more frequently, because they can turn them around in, you know, 40 minutes instead of in two hours? Will it lead them to explore different types of mechanics, different types of themes, different ways of looking at territorial expansion games, for example? Um, then I think it will have done a good service. I mean, that's probably the most we could hope for here, um, that frequently playing these types of games in the design space will lead to conversations in the design space about, wow, this really works well, or what is the place of, can we have card-driven mechanics in a traditional computer strategy game, but they're not necessarily card-driven mechanics? Is there a way to make them feel, have that same effect uh, in a traditional uh, computer strategy game? I think a lot of developers at least the strategy developers that I know, play a lot of board games, but they don't get to play them like most people. They don't get to play them a lot because it's getting the group together and finding the time and everyone wants to play a different game. But having a chance to have all of these rules in front of you and to have repeated iterations in front of you as you play it and talking to other developers and playing against other developers, I think that's where these things can contribute to the conversation by contributing to the conversation among developers more than among customers because who knows where that conversation is i mean there's there aren't a lot of places where people talk about strategy games in a higher or consumers talk about strategy games in a larger abstract sense of you know well let's compare ashes of singularity to gray goo and how they both deal with theories of goo um but in the developer space, there is there are these types of conversations, and there and I think having a chance to have all of these board games have hopefully more board games. So I hope this does lead to more people doing this sort of thing. That's where I think the payoff is going to be, um, and I'm really hopeful for it because everybody I know who plays Twilight Struggle loves Twilight Struggle, and now they get to play a lot of it. Yeah, um, I think that's going to be the big help here. And I don't think we can underestimate the importance of just having everybody to play this game a whole bunch and seeing why it works so well for so many people. But why, why Nate Silver is right. I, I agree. And I think it's interesting, Rob, you, you opened this up by talking about Soren because I actually see Offworld Trading Company as the first game that is designed as a video game that is coming from this board game ethos. And, you know, it, it is basically a board game. I can easily see a board game using every single mechanic from it. It would take forever, but it is basically a board game that plays in, what, 40 minutes to an hour and a half, depending on how aggressive people are, a little longer, a little shorter maybe. Um, and, and that is a game that has gotten better and better and better patch by patch because of Exactly what you said, Troy. The number of iterations you can get on a game like this makes it better and better. And and honestly, Offworld Trading Company is one of my favorite games of the last two years, and it's not even officially out yet, I don't think. Or maybe it's maybe it's basically barely out. Um, the the flip side of that is I see some of the innovations I see in board games and I'm dying to get those into video games. The the most obvious one is all the stuff that Rob Davio, who, you know, fair fair warning, one of my best friends, he's done with Pandemic Legacy and Risk Legacy uh, and soon to come with Seafall, right? That idea of still a game-by-game game experience where you're playing sort of an hour at a time, but you're building a world that's changing. You're using a group of two to four or five players to to go through that world together and have a unique experience that is really changing the landscape of a game over a 10, 20 hour space. That's really exciting to me because that's something we don't get in strategy games, right? We talk about multiplayer online video games and it's uh, an hour or two beating up a guy next to you. That's, I mean, that's virtually the definition of video game strategy games, right? They're Starcraft, they're Civilization, um, they're not, they're not these kinds of epic sweeping collaborative experiences where you're changing a whole world game after game. Yeah, it's, I, I actually do think that, that Soren has sort of made a, made a real time, re, real time board game, uh, when it, when it comes to this stuff. Um, I think, I'm th I think for me, 
What I what I kind of wonder is is this an unusual case where it's going where where this game is translated really well? It was in the hands of of, of good translators, uh, but. You know, I, I do wonder, for instance, you brought up block games earlier, Julian, and I, I kind of wonder, like, does a block game even make sense on on the PC, right? Because we've had Fog of War mechanics, you know, for, for ages. Like, are there, are there a lot of cool board game ideas that just, that just wouldn't really I, make a lot of sense outside their native environment? I, I stick to my comment about Memoir 44, which I think is still a, a really fun game to play, sort of beer and pretzel style with a friend across the table. It's kind of boring playing it on a PC because it's a really simple game. Most block games mechanically are very simple games. And what's interesting about them, whether it's, uh, you know, whether it's what, what was the Japanese game we were just playing, Rob? Yeah. Say, so uh, say uh, uh, um, you know, or Hammer of the Scots, uh, you know, a significantly more complex game. The mechanics are actually really pretty simple, and it's all the fog of war stuff that's actually complex, complicated. And once you remove all that, which the computer does with a hand wave, I'm not sure you get much by putting them on a PC. Part of the reason Twilight Struggle works so well here, and part of the reason why Offworld Trading Company works so well as a computer game, is you get to bury the complexity. Right, you don't have to worry about all that rules adjudication. You don't have to worry about setup. You don't have to worry about keeping track of all the different stuff in the space race and the military ops and and you know even the scoring. Um, that all goes away, and so you can make significantly complicated games very accessible. Wait, well, is, is Playdex still doing the, the command and and colors game? Uh, I don't know. I don't think so. They were Not supposed on iOS. to be. They were supposed to be on iOS. At least they were a few years ago. And I haven't heard anything about it since what 2014, I think. Um, but I know they were supposed to be working on it. So it'd be interesting to see if they can take you know this very simple block game, which is you know the Memoir 44 system, but in the right era, so it works really, really well. Um, it's not a boring game. It's a very interesting game. But I do wonder how that will hold up. And if Playdeck is still working on it, if because it's Playdeck, they'll end up making it even better. Yeah. Tech, I, just a quick look says that Tank on Tank, which was a lock and load game, Command and Colors and Smash Up have all been sort of, quote unquote, stealth canceled uh, by okay. Playdeck. Okay. Uh, but yeah, Command and Colors would have been an interesting test on that because that's taking yeah. the simplicity of the Memoir 44 system and putting it in a block game. So, yeah, my suspicion is that that wouldn't have worked out. Uh, real quick, as we, as we wrap wrap this up, going around the room, uh, what's your... What 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 do you hope what do you hope hope leads the way uh, to to marrying PC gaming and uh, tabletop gaming? What's 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 next on your list? If you could have a version as good as Twilight Struggle, what's the what's the board game you're 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 dying to be able to just break out on on PC? Oh, that's hard. That's hard. I mean, I you know I I'm I'm a big fan of worker placement games. That's been my jam for a while. Yeah. And my favorite one of really ever is uh, is uh, Caverna, which is sort of the spiritual successor to Agricola. So if anybody was going to do it, it would be Playdeck because they did Agricola really well. Uh, but by the time Agricola came out on iOS, I was already deep down the Caverna rat hole. So uh, I'll take I'll take Caverna. I like to see I, I, I like to see someone do a, a a a cooperative board game on the PC. Like, Something like. like Pandemic, P- pandemic yeah. for, 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 for freedom, the Underground Railroad, uh, something like that. Uh, something that's cooperative. Everyone has to be on the same team um, and see if they can make that interesting. Um, because you know we have the, there are all these cooperative games now on you know on iOS and there's that what's that, what's that spaceship one Artemis. Oh yeah yeah yeah. And there's that don't blow up everybody game. There are all these cooperative. Um, games out there on the PC and in the iOS space. Yeah, you have and- a cooperative board game move in, and uh, I think cooperative board games are a good way to introduce people to board games in general because you don't have that pressure to win and everybody's on the same side. Um, so I think that is where PC ports of board games should go. Yeah, there. I mean, there is a really good port of Pandemic, um, which I think was actually done in-house by F2Z or Z-Man, whoever owned it at the time. Um, I played it. I mean, I have it. 
Um, I think the problem there is that those are games that inherently really need more than two players. Like Pandemic with two players is boring, right? You really need a four-player game of Pandemic, and you need to be able to talk. So that has to, and I don't, I don't think there's a PC version. I think there's only an iOS version, right? So that's a game where you really want to have everybody talking at the same time. You want chat. You want, you all want to be on Skype or something like that. And so I think it would have to be designed to bring people together. And the versions that I've seen of those kinds of co-op games so far haven't really done that. They've just sort of been straight up ports that you play with a bunch of bad AI. Yeah, that's uh, certainly a valid point. Rob? I think for me, uh, perhaps just because I've, I've heard so much about them of late and I finally got my first taste of them while visiting Bruce, uh, the coin games. All the coin games. Uh, because I think they're really interesting ideas. And admittedly, I was exhausted when I was playing Fire, Fire in the Lake. Uh, but that was fussy as hell. Like the amount of administration and, and upkeep with those games is is pretty intense like they're not they're, they're not like overwhelmingly complicated they're just they're just hard to make sure that everything is sort of being maintained correctly it's it's hard to hard to keep up and i think that's a series that could you know maybe even benefit from from being on pc because you would you'd be able to focus more on the strategic problems that you're trying to solve rather than checking the rule book to make sure like, all right, did we, did we, did we turn the, did we turn the clock forward on this turn correctly? Uh, did all the gears and, and, and wheels uh, turn, turn the right way? Uh, so I think for me, it's, it's, for me, it's the coin series, right? Uh, both because. Good God. I mean, I haven't played any of those games, but I've read about them and I've seen pictures and I've watched videos and they just seem like, like there's an infinite number of little scorekeeping things going on at the same time. Yes. So, so I, I think I agree with you that good God, does this game need like computer mediated tracking, but doesn't that just sort of end up looking like a Soren Johnson game? No, I don't think, see, no? I don't think so. Right. Because fundamentally, even this is, this is what's easy to forget, right? Even the like most complicated board games, are often not really that complicated compared to a lot of what we've sort of gotten used to on PC, right? Like, I, I, I sometimes wonder if you had... I do kind of wonder if you had, like, just a straight-up conversion of of Squad Leader, uh, what it would look like, right? Like, if, if, if the game was just handling all of that, how, how bad would it be? Uh, I, I suspect that, you know, some of the Avalon Hill games I've got on my shelf, uh, you know, Third Reich... Um, you know, France 1940, I, I, I kind of suspect that as overwhelming as that is on the tabletop, uh, would probably not be so brain shattering if if a computer was just handling the, the fussiness of it. Would, would you say that the that taking something like Fire in the Lake, which is a game I'm fascinated with, but have never played, but have watched actually a bunch of people playing it, it strikes me as sort of an interesting mix of a more strategic territory control game and, and Twilight Struggle, right? Where you oh, still yeah. got sort of this card-based event mechanic going on all the time, but a much more traditional territory control war game going on at the same time. Yeah, there's, there, there's, there's definitely a bit of that, although it's surprising how much that war game plays out exactly like influence in, in Twilight Struggle. Uh, with the difference, oh, really? Despite the thousands of wooden pieces, yeah. With the difference being that the American player has the ability to uh, basically nuke Viet Cong from orbit once they've been once they've been revealed. Uh, but a lot of it actually, in fact, I'm not even sure there's like that many dice involved. A lot of the combat is resolved with straight up like you know, for every two of this, one of these dies. Uh, type calculations, so it's right. it's a game that looks overwhelming, uh, but isn't isn't that difficult to sort of wrap your mind around? It's just difficult to to keep it all keep it all running correctly because scoring is enormously complicated. It's it's hard to keep up an accurate count. It's hard to keep up an accurate count in your head. Uh, it's it's a hard game to sort of change everything the right way between turns. Uh, so I think that's a case where having a computer sort of take that off your shoulders and my God, a computer to offer contextual help uh, would, would probably make that game 
maybe a little more enjoyable. At least that's my hope, right? That you'd find it's more enjoyable and not that you discover that the game isn't everything you thought it was. Right. That's, right. That, that's you know, there's, there's two ways this can that's, go, right? Like That's the Memoir 44 problem. It's, right. it's the Memoir 44 problem or, or more sadly, it's the um, A Few Acres of Snow problem, right? Yeah. Where a game you just yeah. adore starts to starts to pale pretty quickly once you're able to run, you know, <laughs> a couple games a day. hundred games yeah. of it, yeah. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, so that's that covers Twilight Struggle. And I, I, I think we, we're giving it a pretty pretty high recommendation. Uh, I think it's a no-brainer if you if you if you've played and, and liked the board game. And I think if you haven't encountered it, uh, find someone who so find someone who has and 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 have them sort of take you through the PC version. And I, I think you'll find it's 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 well worth your time. Hey, I'll put my name out there. I'm Rabbit on the Playdeck system, so go for it. Challenge me. All right. So that will do it for tonight's episode of Three Moves Ahead. Uh, as always, this episode was produced by Michael Hermes and is hosted in the Idle Thumbs Network. We will be back next week with another episode of Three Moves Ahead. Until then, for Troy Goodfellow and Julian Murdoch, this is Rob Zachney saying good night. <laughs>